I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. In the following episode, I sat down with Tracy Featherson, a former Marine logistics officer and current MBA student at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business. I knew of Tracy through a mutual friend and decided to reach out to her on LinkedIn to gauge her interest in being a guest on my show. As an African-American female Marine officer, Tracy brings a perspective we've yet to hear on this platform. As challenging as it is for a black man to be a Marine officer, I can only imagine how challenging it must be for a female. I give Tracy the space to express her truth, sharing what led her to join the Marine Corps in the first place, the wall that she held up her entire time in service, and how she's using the lessons learned from her own leadership experience to uplift men and women of color in her own way. I also asked Tracy how she handled the deaths of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray as an active duty Marine officer and how she feels about the recent police killings of George Floyd. Tracy and I talk about how important it is for us to have spaces where we can feel comfortable and vulnerable. Over the course of our discussion, Tracy expressed thoughts, feelings, and emotions she's never made public until now. And for that, I'm truly thankful. It was a pleasure having her as a guest, and I hope that you enjoy our discussion as much as I did. As always, I truly appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy today's show. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of my show. I'm sitting down today with Tracy Featherson. It's Featherson, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're chopping up, man. Tracy is a, is a smart... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. She's just very smart and talented because I was picking her brain about something um, that I'm working on, a little, little hustle on top of another hustle that I'm be uh, talking about at the close of uh, this season. But uh, I thought it was important to get her on here and share with you all about what it's like to be a, a black female Marine officer. So I want to go ahead and welcome Tracy to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. And, you know, you know, the welcome and everything is it's just an honor to be here. Thanks for, uh, you know, calling me up and giving me the opportunity to tell my story. I really appreciate that. No, the pleasure is all mine. You know, I started this series and it was never really about the veteran experience. It's just part of my foundational history and my story. Um, and then I kind of got into this always faithful thing and started talking about my Marine Corps experience. And then one of the things I became conscious of as the season went on was the absence of the female voice. And so I think I've made a lot of comments about what it was like to be a black uh, Marine officer, especially as a male, but we haven't had the presence of a black female. And I thought it'd be great mm -hmm. to kind of talk about your experience and uh, just educate people out there that may or may not know what it's like for um, someone like yourself to serve in an environment that's so challenging and difficult, but professional and, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. So it's a, it's great to have you here. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. And, you know, I must, I must tell, you know, all, all your listeners, like, you know, I'm, I'm one voice or so many other strong black women who came before me are still there. So uh, I'm blessed to be here, but, you know, definitely remember there's, there's so many other narratives. So I, I do this uh, with them in mind, but not in place of their voice. 
So I want you to do me a favor. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone? Let them know who you are. Um, just real briefly, just give yourself a quick introduction and then we can keep rolling with the show. Yeah. Um, so I am um, uh, a captain and logistics officer uh, currently serving in, in, in the reserves. I left active duty last year to pursue my MBA um, at Northwestern University. So I'm entering my second year or have begun my second year um, currently. But I did about eight years on active duty before I uh, tra- transitioned to the reserves. Prior to that, um, I'm a military brat. Both of my parents are retired Marines. Um they uh, were both sergeants major uh, in the Marine Corps, and they were very obviously inter- instrumental in my decision to pursue the Marine Corps, um, but by no means was, was that an expectation. Um, so I called Virginia home. After they retired, I spent you know, over, over half my life in that state. So I do I do consider myself a uh, Virginia girl. Went to the University of Virginia and graduated in 2010, and no ROTC, none of that. I just decided about a year after I graduated that would uh, pursue a uh, commissioning route for for the Marine Corps. But eight, eight glorious years later, decided um, I was going to pivot to the reserves and pursue a different path through uh, business. And that's what kind of brought me to where I am physically today. Um, it's been it's been a great job. And Marine Corps has always been and will always be a part of my life and who I am as a woman, as a leader. So this is this is just one way of uh, really giving, giving honor to that and giving credence to where I came from and where my parents came from. Yo, Tracy is a motivator, y'all. We did our little pre-interview. First of all, she's a professional. I was like, hey, I want to get you on my podcast, man. We had to schedule a pre-interview. I'm like, all right, let me, you know. Because I'll tell y'all, people see me. They see me doing stuff. They think it's like a well-oiled machine. I'm just making stuff up. But I'm noticing, man, I got to get a little more professional. See y'all little pre-questions and everything like that. We jump on the call. She's got her USMC sweatshirt on so she so she's motivated so disclaimer anything we're about to say both of y'all we're pretty motivated i mean i got a marine corps tattoo so i think we can be critical and we can be honest but it's all in the sense of making things better for those that come behind because i'll tell you you know uh since doing this show we've got a quite a quite a few young uh black marine officers who say i'm a mentor to them you know just kind of in their ear and uh so they're listening they're paying attention and so you know, this concept of lifting as we climb, because I just want to, I'm not speaking just for you, not speaking for you, I'm speaking for myself, but I just want to be as authentic as I possibly can in this world. And this show allows me to do that. And guests like yourself, you know, I like to bring on here and share their perspective as well to just kind of, you know, broaden the knowledge as well. That's awesome. Like, I'm, and I'm so proud of watching you and, and, and give yourself some credit. You were prepared. You, you had, you had answers to all my questions. I just wanted to make sure I came with the right mindset. So he's, I'm gonna let him uh, be humble, but I'm gonna brag on him. He had his stuff ready. And I just, I just wanted to make sure I was ready to go. <laughs> so one of the things we do on this show, Tracy, is everybody has to give a confession. So I'll go ahead and set the stage um, by going first. And so my confession for this is that I have not always done the best job of protecting black females. Mm. And I say that from my time, even in early days, like you're talking about like elementary school to the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps. Um, And I don't know if it was just like a lack of self-awareness, but you know, we're all kind of growing and we're learning. But as I became more aware of what it means to be a black man in this world, and I keep thinking back to situations I found myself in where I was, where I felt like I was one of one, I would say almost 98% of the time there was a black female there. And I know as a man, if I was going through it, I can only imagine, you know, what she was going through. And one of the things I think about, you know, that's, that's still fresh in my mind was 
when I was in elementary school, there was a young woman in uh, my elementary class with me and the kids used to make fun of her because of the way her mm -hmm. hair, they would say, you know, she, she came from a rough upbringing. So she mm -hmm. didn't always have like the nicest clothes. She always didn't have um, the best grooming, whatever. And it, the kids made fun of her obviously because of it, but because mm -hmm. of the environment we found ourselves in, and this was like a, a pretty white elementary school, you know, mm -hmm. we're the only black kids in the class. And she, okay. I can imagine she went through hell. And as mm -hmm. I, that always bothers me as I think about that time, because I wasn't, I didn't know enough, you know, but I should have been protecting her and helping her. And I don't remember her name and I don't know what life uh, took her, but I do remember mm -hmm. the kids making fun of her, making fun of the way her hair was, making fun of mm -hmm. her, her clothing and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I just try to do as best I can moving forward. But I think of instances like that all throughout my upbringing. Um, and I'm just making a confession about it because we got to do better. We got to protect womanhood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I appreciate your vulnerability there, Mike. I think that's um, that's pretty important what you said about protecting women and particularly protecting black women. I think uh, those early instances of ostracism or just being othered as a black woman and especially as a black young girl is is is, is so uh, critical to how we grow up as leaders, regardless of what field we choose to enter. And most importantly, it impacts how we view ourselves and it impacts our our confidence and our uh, perception of who we can and cannot be. Um, and, that, and, and, and that kind of feeds into my own confession that I need to share um, uh, with, you know, with everyone here. Um, I would say my uh, confession is that I um, don't believe I was the best leader that I could have been uh, when I was on active duty. Um, I felt the weight of carrying um, the perception of black women officers in everything I did, everything I said, every you know, it was, it was, it was so heavy that um, rather than being empathetic and you know implementing some of those you know uh, classic leadership. Uh, tools that they teach you at TBS or as a young lieutenant of take care of the Marines and be there for them and make sure you're there for them. Um, I think I ended up sacrificing that a lot, pretty much my entire active duty career, because I always felt that if I messed it up operationally or if I wasn't successful or if I didn't have results, um, I was going to uh, make it harder for the next black woman behind me, enlisted or officer. And so I always felt that I had to show up and show out, which meant there was no room to be personable. There was no room to be liked. There was no room to, you know, be empathetic and make sure that I was, um, you know, really thinking about the welfare. It was always a mission. How am I succeeding? You know, what is my commander asking of me? Am I, am I delivering of that? To, uh, delivering on that. Um, and, and I think that early mindset of if I don't, you know, uh, uh, obtain success as a black woman, I'm going to make it harder for everybody else. I'm going to embarrass every other black woman who came before me, my mother included. Um, and that, that weighed on me uh, in every decision. And I think that really uh, made me put a wall up between me and my Marines from the, like as a platoon commander, as an EXO, as a company commander, when I was at TBS, especially, um, I felt like I had to really perform. And rather than 
um, being and being empathetic and being open and allowing allowing them to see me for who I am. Um, I really rob them of that, but then I rob myself of the opportunity to um, really lead lead in in the way I needed to. And so I just I you know that's something I think about a lot, um, and I've done a lot to to change now as I enter into the business world, um, making sure I never do that again. Um, and, to, and to any Marine that's out there listening, uh, particularly if I had you at TBS or you know in in, in my earlier roles as a young platoon commander, EXO or CO. Um, know that who you saw wasn't Tracy. You saw a, a character of what I thought needed to be the best Marine. I mean, did it did it give me success and turn into results and promotions and billets? Of course it did, but that was not who I wanted to be. Um, I was married. I, I was wearing a mask, and I did not. Um, Feel like that was sustainable, and that was part of part of my decision to transition to reserves. I just felt like I couldn't leave in the in the capacity that I wanted to as a black woman because because the weight was just too heavy. Everything I did was going to be criticized um, or or have some kind of adverse effect on the next black woman behind me. Um, you know that 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 uh, that really sits you know sits deep in my soul, and I always you know work hard to try to correct correct that now. I appreciate you sharing. And uh, again, I think being a leader is being leading with empathy. And mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I say this on this show all the time, but y'all hear me because I get some critiques out there about certain guests I have on here. They're like, well, he didn't do anything while he was in. Listen, my <laughs> father, he said, a man who views the world at 20 as he does at 50 has a man who views the world at 50 the same as he did at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life. Mm-hmm. So I have a growth mindset. I can tell you have a growth mindset. And for people out there that don't, I pity you, you know, mm-hmm. because and we learn. But For sure. one thing I want to talk about before we move on is, you know, one, I've mentioned it before, but I folded under the weight of that pressure. You're talking about that pressure of being like, I describe it as like, we all have to be the next like black Martin Luther King. You know, yeah. when you're, you're just like carrying the weight of the race on your shoulder yeah. on every decision you make. But there was something important you talked about, and I've experienced this firsthand of you know, we have this assumption that if there is someone in a position of power that looks like us, that we can we have that empathetic leader. But the power dynamics that it puts on them, sometimes you end up walking up to a somebody you feel like you empathize with. And I'm not saying this is you, but you're like, hey, sir, I just want to introduce myself. Why are you talking to me, Marine? <laughs> I thought we were. Listen, I don't know what you talk just because we're the same skin color doesn't mean right. I'm same standard and sometimes we get it harder than everybody else mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. and that's a whole topic and a rabbit hole to go down but i'm curious to hear your thoughts on that yeah i think um to some degrees i was that um unrightfully so i just i just you know felt like um i really needed to again to, to you know to use this word again to perform and it was a defense mechanism it had nothing to do with the Marine coming up to me. Um, it had everything to do with the fact that, you know, I was so concerned about how I was perceived. I never wanted to be weak because I'm a woman. I never wanted to be incompetent because I'm a black Marine. I just, I mean, and then you, you know, put those things together as a black woman. Um, that stuff really does mess with you. And, 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 and I never, uh, I never um, understood how that was impacting how I interacted with Marines until a little later um, at TBS, right? When I was an instructor and I, and I could really see 
um, how I was projecting myself. And I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't even like what I was seeing of myself um, because I could just see that I was so concerned about the perception from the white male Marines, student enlisted instructors, peer officer instructors that I never gave myself the, the grace and the mercy to just live my authentic uh, self you know, in uniform and show others that you can be competent, you can be yourself. Um, and then part of that is you're just kind of always questioned as a woman anyway, especially in uniform. And I knew that. So I always tried to hedge that, right. And like, okay, let me, let me get you before you get me. Right. And, and that was always um, the mindset. It's, it's a, it's a means of survival. And I know I'm not the only woman who experienced that. Um, and I think over time you realize that you can, start carving out space for yourself as a, you know, as an officer, but, you know, as a, as a junior officer, you don't see that, you don't understand that just yet. You don't have that maturity yet um, to really see that. And so, you know, I can only say this in hindsight, because if I could see it then in the moment, I wouldn't have been who I was. Um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have projected half of, you know, half of what I projected most of the time. So as leaders in both civilian and in the military, as black people, how do we cultivate, I don't know, let me say, let me re- take a pause on this. How do we ensure that we're still leading with empathy? How do we ensure the next generation is still leading with empathy? Because if you're one of one and you're in an environment where there aren't people that look like you, it is very lonely enough as it is. And then you mm-hmm. see someone in a position of authority in a position of power and you feel like you can identify with them and they just treat you harder. You know, and it makes I've in my experience, I found out that it makes it even that much lonelier. And so how do we cultivate people that are in those positions of power to be prepared to assume those roles? Yeah. So so I think, if you know, if I understand your your question about how do we, you know, develop young leaders to be empathetic leaders coming up, I think at the center, at the heart of it all is always to remember where you came from and to remember what it was like to be, you know, to be a young lieutenant or to be a young um, leader in your, in, in, in your profession. And so when you do promote or get to those higher ranks, you never forget that feeling. And so when someone comes to you asking for advice or just out of sheer excitement because they see someone who looks like them, um, embrace them. Um, but you can't do that if you don't do the self-work to allow yourself to be you, right? I think I think the issue with minority officers sometimes is that you don't you don't know when it's okay to be yourself. You don't know when it's okay or when it's safe, for lack of better words, to uh, you know be authentic in these, you know, predominantly white male spaces. Um, and that, and that can be, a, you know, that can create a toxic mindset, right? You start speaking, you know, ill on yourself to yourself. And that starts, you know, that starts how you, that starts a projection of these negative thoughts or this, or, or a negative attitude, which is really just a defense mechanism to protect yourself from others from judging you. Right. And so you start, carrying this weight and you start being really negative you don't have to be that um but you don't you know like uh, until you take control of that thought and take control of the space that you do own and just be yourself and give yourself the mercy to be yourself i mean you know you 
you're not going to get to that point. And so I think as leaders, start carving out space for yourself. Make people recognize you for your accomplishments and not for your skin color, not for your gender. Make them see you for who you are as a, you know, as an officer, as a leader. Um, and, you know, you know, make the, you know, make the gender and the race, the, you know, the footnote to your accomplishments. It shouldn't be the thing that you feel like you have to defend against or defend with every time you speak or step into, you know, step into the figurative boardroom um, or, you know, at the, you know, at the command table. And I know, you know, we're in a very interesting time of this uh, social and racial, you know, reckoning right now in the country and 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 i'm all about it i'm here for it i'm very outspoken now more than i would have ever been in uniform um and 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 i think it's time that people start acknowledging uh you know black leaders for the things that they contribute but we got to contribute and not be afraid of contributing personally and professionally to the to the conversation and that's the only way that we get that recognition and that um acknowledgement in the in the professional workspaces I refer to the era we find ourselves in, in the, the George Floyd era. Some might call it the post-George Floyd era, but we're still in it. And I like to refer to the day uh, George Floyd died was the day America found out we're all black. That was the day my phone started ringing. That was the day I people were like, oh my God, let me check on yeah. my, uh, you know? Yeah. It, it I, had the, I had the same thing. Um, I call it the fed up rising. That's that's when that's when Black America got fed up with the with the with the treatment that we were getting and and with being second class or you know with being assumed um, anything other than what we were um, and and you know being stripped of our humanity and dignity consistently and for it to be on such um, uh, display as it has constantly been but to but to really see it in that manner um, I think. Uh, really, really brought America to its knees collectively, right? You had no choice but to look at and to and to denounce the um, dehumanization of that man in that video. So I call it the fed up rising because um, I think equally that forced, you know, um, non-Black Americans, and I'm insert any other demographic in there uh, to really see what was happening, um, you know, both in microaggressions and in very, you know, blatant instances like that. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. It was definitely a time when we needed to address what was happening. We're going to get a little deeper into into that as we continue this conversation. But before we do, I want to go to give a shout out to our sponsors. First, I got to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, we got to give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit organization that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities for inner city youth and young adults. Shout out to two badass brands, both run by African-American Marine officers, Mr. Mike Lloyd and yours truly. We're doing it for the culture. We're doing it to motivate all you veteran entrepreneurs out there and show you what can be done when you have a dream and a little bit of grit and determination. So be sure to check out Dope Coffee, show us some love and check out ironboundboxing.org. Help us keep these kids out the street and in the gym and continue to lift as we climb. All right, Tracy, the theme of today's show, Confessions of a Black Female Marine Officer. Listen, we've been all here talking. I, I Seriously, I mean, I've looked. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of content out there, I feel like, um, mm -hmm. that really speaks to you all, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I know when I was in, 
the uh, Marine Corps, and I think I went to like an NNOA meeting or something. Like mm-hmm. one of the O reps up there who spoke literally said the golden, I think it was golden goose of the Marine Corps, like the golden egg is like a black female Marine officer. <laughs> like literally, if you can find a black female Marine officer that is interested in the Marine Corps and wants to join, they were like, please. And this was a black officer. Mm-hmm. So I think you, um, are you familiar with intersectionality? This idea. People don't think it exists. They're like, oh, we're oh, a female. We're all shame. No, like, I'm shame. A, like, no, you're like, I'm a female African American from the South. And so you bring all this stuff in it. So you have your own experience. And so I just want to give you the platform to let you share yours. And so why don't you go ahead and just kind of tell us about your upbringing and your background and what it was like leading you up to joining the Marine Corps? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for holding space for us, um, us being Black women officers. I can say at one point, I think the stat is a, is a little bit higher, but there were, as I was coming in, I was brand new when I commissioned in 2011, the stat was 118 Black female officers then from second lieutenant to um, lieutenant colonel um, at the time on active duty. And you, you think about the time the force was growing to about 200,000. I said, Oof, that's a that's a that's a small number. So I remember that coming in. Um, but you know, growing up, as I mentioned before, both of my parents uh, were enlisted Marines, and so you know, we did the travel thing. We traveled every couple of years, um, moving from you know, Okinawa to Camp Lejeune to Paris Island, back to Okinawa, back to Lejeune, and finally, finally ending in Quantico. So I bounced around quite a bit. But the Marine Corps was second nature to me. You know, you know, dinner table conversations always centered around what's happening at work. Right? I, I remember knowing what a monitor was before I joined the Marine Corps, because I remember the conversation, like, hey, you know what the monitors say? I didn't know what my parents were really talking about, but I knew that guy was gonna tell us where we're going next. <laughs> so, you know, the Marine Corps is always part of, you know, part of, uh, you know, the home and, you know, very, very proud, you know, have, you know, an older sister and she can tell you the same thing. We were just so proud of our parents and who they were and how they led and, you know, in their, in their jobs. And I will say for the most part, they did a, they did a pretty decent job of, you know, never making us feel like we had to join the military. That was never really a topic of conversation. The topic of conversation was you're going to go to college, right? You're going to go to school. You're going to get good grades. You're going to go on and, you know, make something of yourself. The topic of conversation was never, you know, hey, make sure you, you know, sign up and, you know, make sure you consider ROTC. They didn't even make us do JROTC, any of that. That was, that was never, that was never something that they explicitly encouraged us to do. Sure, I'm sure they would have loved it, but we just, that just never came up. Um, you know, mom, you know, mom and dad came home, but I think um, I got bit by the bug, <laughs> you know, more so than my sister. I eventually um, got bit by the bug. Uh, really, more so once I got to college. Um, I like, like I said before, I didn't do ROTC. I was actually pretty adamant that I wasn't going to join the military when I went to college. Like, no, I want to quote unquote, uh, you know, normal college experience. And, you know, I don't want that. So I did it. Um, and then about halfway through, I realized that I just, I, I, I really just had a calling. I was like, look, like I really do enjoy, um, you know, the problems and the challenges that comes with being a leader. I enjoyed being in, you know, those positions where I could help other people succeed, um, you know, by, you know, helping them see the best of themselves or leading something to, 
uh, you know, from point A to point B. And I was doing that, you know, as like, you know, club president or vice president and, you know, some undergraduate clubs on campus. And I just felt like I really liked that. I just, I just enjoyed being in those kinds of roles. Um, I was like, okay, what job, you know, is really going to allow me to do that? I was like, oh, of course, the military. <laughs> um, and now once I kind of approached the topic of my parents, you know, halfway through college about the military, they, I will say they, they did only give us two options. It was like, you can join the Marine Corps, you can join the Air Force. That's it. They never, they never gave us room to join the Army or the Navy. They always said, "Don't you are going to join the Marine Corps or the Air Force." That's it. Um, and so, with those two being my only choices, <laughs> I joined the Marine Corps. Um, and it took some time, kind of go through the waivers and all the other process of you know to go, you know, you know, get to OCS. About a year after I graduated um, was when I actually finally was able to, you know, go to OCS and commission in 2011. And really, kind of the rest was history. Um, uh, you know, got a got a pretty severe injury at TBS that extended my stay by an additional ten months of rehab. Um, so that took a that took some time to get through TBS, but I was I, I was determined to really um, get through that process. You know, again, I was feeling that weight of you know I got to really uh, you know perform for the women, you know, the Black women of the Marine Corps. And so I was I saw no other way. Um, out of, you know, out of the Marine Corps. I was not interested in being medically retired. I had colonels telling me like, hey, you're probably going to get medically retired. This, this is a bad injury. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. And um, somehow just, just zoned in, locked in, laser focused and got the rehab um, two months shy of when they anticipated me. They, they estimated 12 months. I just was knucklehead, 23 year olds. And now I'm going to get through. 10 months, um, ended up having the same SPC once I, once I was able to be placed back into the company. And he really looked out for me too. Um, shout out to Major Dodder if he's uh, out there still. I, I'm a priest and he's still in active duty, probably looking at Lieutenant Colonel pretty soon. Um, but he really did get me through um, just by believing in what I could accomplish too. Um, and, to, and then after that, I got to the fleet, the fleet beyond behind some of my peers I started with at OCS. Um, but I was just determined to just, um, you know, be successful despite the start of, you know, the start of, you know, of an injury like that. Um, and then after that, it was, it was just keeping my head down and performing, 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 and just, you know, in spite of, right, in spite of any other ad- adversity that I could potentially have faced. So I got a couple questions for you. Um, first, sure. you were going into the Marine Corps. I can't like when I was at the Naval Academy. Um, I mean, you're from the South, right? So there's like Virginia military yeah. dude out there, Confederate flags blowing. <laughs> in, you know? like, so you kind of know kind of like what you're going into. But Absolutely. were there any whispers of like all the services you're going into, like the the white gun club? You know, um, I feel like when I was at the Naval Academy, that was a perception that was given to us. And we kind of knew it anyway. But was there yeah. any, I don't, I won't call it negative, but you have any, were there any worries you had going into the environment? Oh, absolutely. I knew, I knew um, how small the Marine Corps was, but I also was very aware of how white it was um, coming in. I mean, look, I was the kid that um, was bouncing around the duty hut. And so my mom or dad got off work, right? When they were company, you know, company first sergeants or battalion sergeants major, right? So I, I was always in, you know, someone's dad going office. So I knew what it looked like. I already knew what that looked like. Um, but I will say, um, I never, 
um, had the thought of, uh, you know, this is a dangerous environment for me. I just knew that I was going to be one of very, very, very few. I think having my mother being a successful black woman, uh, enlisted Marine, um, really never put the thought of unattainableness, if that's a word, just made it one, um, in my head. If my mother can do it, if my black woman mother can do it, I damn sure can, right? And so I definitely attribute a lot of my hardheadedness to seeing her do it for 27 years. And so I will say it was it, it was never something that I thought I couldn't achieve because I had an example at home, right? It was it, there was you know that that thought just never crossed my mind. Um, uh, but what I will say was very present in my mind was, um, you know, you can't you can't ever let you know, someone think that you can't perform. You gotta always be on. And I will say that 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 was what I had. Like you, you gotta always be on. As a woman, you gotta be on. As a black woman, you gotta be on. You can't ever let somebody get something on you. My mother used to tell me that never let anybody get anything on you. You know, but you know, make sure, you know, all your T's are crossed and your eyes are dotted. Um, and I think that um that I think is kind of that was kind of the beginning, as I mentioned before in my confession, where I just I lacked the empathy because I was so, you know, concerned about being successful. Don't let them get anything on me, right? I got my, you know, my mom said that when I was young and just never left me. Um, and so I think that was probably what was the um, the carrying uh, 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 or underlying um, mindset in everything that I did. Understood. My next question for you is, uh, I was an infantry officer, and I struggled at TPS <laughs> with the outdoors, you know, the <laughs> land nav, all that kind of stuff, man. Yeah. I'm telling you, it was team struggle bus. Uh, <laughs> but I want to know, what was your experience like going through that process? I like to call the process mm-hmm. of becoming, like, becoming a Marine, period. Like, the yeah. outdoors, the guns, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that at OCS and uh, TBS? OCS was fun. I ain't gonna lie. I'm sure, um, you know, people have their, have their stories and, uh, you, you know, I, I, I very much look at OCS and TBS as very different experiences. Um, OCS challenged me to really dig deep and to, you know, you know, have a dream, see the dream and achieve the dream. Um, so, you know, getting to OCS was such a feat for me. Um, so, so that was, you know, that, you know, that was a, you know, a good time. Um, but TBS, uh, really, really was a gut check, particularly after I got injured. Um, uh, but, 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 you know, pre-injury. So, so for clarity, I was, I was four and a half months into a six month POI when I got injured. Um, to the point my SBC actually came to the hospital to give me my MOS. Like that's how deep into the process I was when I got injured. Um, so I had seen most of it, um, you know, by then I just, I literally just had six weeks left to graduate, but you know, the injury took me out for 10 months. So that was all um, a good slow down pulse. But TBS, uh, I think the difficult part there um, for me was really seeing how my male counterparts viewed women at the time the original company i started with there were about six or seven women per per platoon and you could hear and you could see it in the you know squad and platoon peer rankings you know week after week you could see how they started to measure the women against the other women in the platoon 
we didn't get measured against the men. It was all right, there's six, seven women. Okay, of the six or seven women in the platoon, this is how I'm gonna rank them. Right. And 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 it it became this unspoken battle against the other women in your platoon to not be the one that gets ranked at the bottom. But let's be sure, like, like let's not let's not ignore what was actually happening. We were not seen as equals, right? We weren't being ranked as fellow officers, we were competent. I remember some of my peer feedback being, oh, Lieutenant Featherston is competent. Not, you know, Lieutenant Featherston, you know, is is, you know, a good, you know, a good leader or a good um uh uh you know, and you know, motivator or, or, or influencer, it came down to whether I knew it or if I didn't know it. And other male Marines in the, in the platoon never got that kind of feedback. They didn't get, are, are, you, are you competent? That was almost assumed. It was never assumed of the women, at least in my platoon, that, you know, that you, you know, that we were competent or that we had it. We had to prove that every time. Um, and so, you know, kind of seeing some of my, you know, female roommates go through this challenge of, not only do you just have to struggle to know the material, pass land nav, and be physically fit, now you got to, you know, combat the BS of your male counterparts judging you because you tripped on the e-course or, <laughs> you know, you didn't, um, you know, you know, feel, you know, feel comfortable speaking up or said the wrong thing in a sex, which every other dude at the table also said wrong things, but it looked different when it came from the woman. And that was kind of my first time seeing that. And it became, you know, this kind of nasty environment where you just, you know, just kind of competed with the other women. Um, and that just wasn't, you know, and, and it was subtle, you know, it was never blatant, but it was subtle, but you knew in the back of your head, everything you did was going to be measured against the other women, uh, you know, in your platoon or across the company. And that just, you know, wasn't, wasn't a good start to anybody's military career. So with them putting you all against each other, how did that affect social dynamics? You know, I don't, I don't know necessarily how that worked for every other platoon, but I will say still to this day, my closest friends were, you know, you know, some of those women that I, you know, went to TBS with. Um, and I definitely have some of the close male friends that I came out of, you know, TBS with for sure. But, um, it, it really just kind of came this, you know, separate survival group. You know, how can we take care of each other so that we don't get, um, uh, you know, gaslighted or, you know, you know, kind of highlighted for, you know, the same thing that men did. It just, it just always looked different when a woman did it. Right. You can, you know, forget to pack an extra pair of socks to the field, but if a woman did it, oh, you know, you're just, you know, you're not, you're not thinking about the field, right? You didn't prepare well. If a dude did it, oh, hey, man, I got an extra pair of socks. <laughs> and it's like, all right, you know, that kind of sucked. Um, you know, but, but I, I like to think um, that, uh, you know, for the women that I went through, I do, I, I do feel like our particular company had a pretty, a pretty tight knit group of women um, who did try to look out for each other for the most part. We tried anyway. Um, but, you know, you, you definitely have some alliances form. And again, that's just not how you want to come into the military. You don't want to feel like you're up, you know, you're, you're climbing this uphill battle, but it's just, you know, that's just, that just is what it is. And, and those, and those, you know, those mindsets and, and, and let me actually backtrack. I don't want to say it is what it is as just, you know, to dismiss it as a, as if it's okay. That's not, um, but that's what it was at the time. And that's, and that was how you got through it. 
it is what it is. Um, I'm not saying that that it's okay, nor am I okay with it. I definitely try to you know push against that um, mindset when I came back um, as an instructor. Were there other black females in your platoon or, or something? <laughs> In my company, yeah, actually, I mean, I don't have the numbers, but I, at the time, it felt like, you know, we had the blackest company on deck at the time. We had, we had a lot of black women and a lot of black men. I was one of those straight OCS to TBS um, companies. So we were OCC. So we had people from all kinds of walks of life um, coming in. But I remember one day somebody actually took a step back and counted how many of us there were black folks that there were in the company. And I forgot the number now, but I could, I could pause and try to count. But, um, at the time, that was that was kind of our inside joke. Like, hey, we got the most black people in the company. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember my SBC having very candid conversations with the black men in my company about, hey, do you want to go to go to IOC? We need more black men in for job positions. He didn't sugarcoat. He was very straight up. He was like, hey, we need more to go to IOC. You want to do this or what? <laughs> and I appreciate him for not sugarcoating. Um, I'll give him that credit. Uh, but yeah, we had, we had quite a few in the company. One more question before we move on. Um, for those of you that were the black group, black officers, mm-hmm. were y'all close? Were y'all supporting each other? Was it kind of? We were. That's good. No, nah, we definitely were. We definitely were. And I mean, many of those guys I still stay in touch with, male, you know, male and female, I still stay in touch with them, even though I'm on the reserve side now, or, you know, we check in with each other from time to time. We keep up with each other on social media. And, you know, many of them are staring now, major now. You know, I think everybody was on the board this past uh, this past August. So I can't wait to the to the list drops and, you know, you, you know, see them pin on and just, you know, you know, proud of those folks um, for being as successful as they have been. Um, and, and, and I, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that that close knit community that we had in that particular company really contributed to at least the mindset that we needed to, you know, to graduate. Awesome. All right, let's keep it going. So talk to us about, um, after you left TBS, you got MOS, you were a combat engineer, correct? No, I was a logistics officer. Right, close enough. Officer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a logo. Went to um, Combat Logistics Battalion 1 out in Camp Pendleton. The dream base. Well, second to Hawaii only. But um, it was a good It was a good time to be there. Um, um, you know, got, got platoon commander right out the gate, which was really exciting. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, it was, you know, was the, the challenge that everyone tells you is going to be, you know, you know, having a platoon and, you know, the one thing that they always fail, we still fail to teach at TBS. I own that, um, is all the leadership challenges, right? We teach you how to dig a defense, but man, we don't tell you how to write pros and cons, right? And, you know, all the important things that, you know, we don't tell you how to deal with a AWOL Marine, um, or a UA Marine, um, you know, month, month three of you taking over, which is what I had. Uh, you know, so I had all your normal, um, you know, lieutenant challenges. And then um, uh, about six months in, um, into the uh, into the unit, we uh, were tapped um, as the, the LCE for um, the logistics combat element for those who are not military to uh, close out um, operation during freedom. So we got tapped to go to Afghanistan as the final logistics battalion and um Keyword. You heard she said close out Afghanistan. This was what, 2012? Actually, for, actually, it was 2014. Yeah, 2014. 2014. Yeah. A little, a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, cool, cool uh, quotation marks. Uh, close it out. We went back. Um, but we closed out Camp Mullinek. Um, 
but I, but even then, I remember that being so contentious because they were cutting the deployment numbers for seats. Um, I mean, we didn't need to send the entire battalion because we're closing out the base. And so that really came down to how many platoons do we need to send? There were three, you know, three platoons, you know, three uh, truck truck platoons in the company at the time. And as we started, you know, getting closer and closer, like we only needed one platoon to go. Um, and we went to ITX and it became a straight up competition of who was going to be the platoon commander to get selected. Um, and I just remember that really impacting me. Um, I thought for sure, um, you know, it was going to come down to, you know, to this, you know, this good old boys network, of, uh, you know, who was going to make it and that was me projecting. I'm not going to act like that wasn't, but I definitely thought for sure they were going to evaluate me negatively as the woman. And that, again, was just some carryover from TBS, I think, of, you know, that toxic environment of, you know, pitting the women against each other and being not measured equally against your peers. But I'm grateful that I didn't have to deal with that in actuality. Um, but I, I, I remember that mentality for me at ITX and the platoon commanders definitely were, we were, we were kind of vicious with each other. We were friends before ITX. We were obviously friends after ITX, but during ITX, it was definitely a ruthless competition to be, you know, you know, at, at the top. And I think that really started that lack of empathy for me again, right? I'm like sitting here making sure I succeed and I deliver and I'm not even thinking about the things that you should be thinking about as a platoon commander, how the Marines doing, how to, you know, you know, you know, are they are they doing okay? Um, you know, are they eating sleep and all of that? And I just I just became a ruthless competitor at that point. Um and, and I think that was kind of the start of that for me. Um that, you know, we went to Afghanistan, came back um, was picked up on the second deployment as a detachment XO to go to Murphy Marine Rotational Force Darwin. So went to Australia for the second deployment um, as a company XO. And that was uh, an equally tough position where we went uh, directly attached in, you know, in DS to one um, four, which is an infantry unit, which at the time we were just starting to think about how do we get women into infantry battalions or combat arm units. Um, and so to be attached to them as a, as another company at the time, I'm sure Murphy is structured differently these days, but back in 2015, we, we're essentially just another line company underneath the battalion commander for that particular de- deployment. And um, now I'm the XO competing with the other company XOs, uh, you know, across this infantry battalion in the predominantly male space. And I remember several of those Lance Corporals on, you know, the infantry side looking at me like, who, who is it? who is this female XO? I remember them not knowing how to salute me, whether they wanted to call me ma'am. They, I mean, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. They had literally never seen, you know, a female Marine officer. I just blew their minds. And I was like, wow, here it is 2015. <laughs> they ain't never seen somebody like me. Um, and that, that deployment brought its own set of challenges from, you know, that, you know, that, um, you know, social interaction with your, you know, with your peers when there's only two, you know, women officers on that particular base. We did have a wing debt, but they were separated from us. Um, they were on a, on a different part of the Darwin um, base. We didn't really see them as much. And they were uh, pretty isolated from us. So we were the two women officers, me and me and one of my platoon commanders as EXO. And then what, like 12 women in 145 Marine detachment supporting, you know, you know, being attached to a 1200, you know, infantry battalion with no women, you know, you know, you know, we were, you know, we stuck out, we stuck out and they treated us like that until they got used to us, but they didn't know what to do. I remember those first two months of the form, they were like, what do we, 
what are y'all? <laughs> do we do we salute y'all or not? Like I don't know what to do. Um, and that had its own dynamic of how do I carry myself in these XO meetings with the opso? You know, how do I, you know, very clearly articulate myself and you know show that I, you know, that I know what I'm, you know, talking about, you know, from the competency level. Um, you know, despite you know being a woman, the only woman in the room every single day. Um, you know that that you know that that. The, Deployment challenged me both as a logo because just overcoming the logistics challenges of being in Australia, but definitely as a woman, you know, and that again drove home. I got to perform and make sure I don't let the black women down, right? You know, and that just that just kept adding to it. And, and seeing their reaction to every, you know, to everything, you know, just kind of reinforced that I needed to make sure I performed all the time, you know, and 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 you know, I was always on, I had to be on, had to be on. Um, and just, you know, it's toxic, you know, just that, you know, you add that layer on again, you just, you know, you start forgetting the, the things that really matter and, and start really driving your own personal measures of success by, you know, whether you're, you know, being successful or not as the commander. You mentioned something, um, you know, being a b- black female Marine officer, and I don't know what it was like for you. But I know as an infantry officer, I was still running the Marines. I had never seen a black officer before. And one time I was walking with another black infantry officer. We're in the field and this poor black Lance Corporal, he was the only one in his platoon. He saw us and he popped up and he asked his platoon commander to come over and talk to us. And he was like, he was just shocked, like almost confused, like you mentioned. But I do remember the pride in his eyes of just like, man, black officers, y'all are infantry officers. As a black female, though, officer, I want to know what that was like moving around just on base, on deployment. How did the other black enlisted Marines view you and see you? What was that space like? Um, man, on deployments, I don't know. You know, you know, I, I, I can't. I can't, I, I can't get into their heads. I mean, you know, a, a few would tell me after the deployment, like, you know, ma'am, you know, we always saw you out there. Um, but again, I put such a wall up. I put such a wall up um, that that I never a- allowed myself to even kind of receive what that what that was. But I do, I do remember um, when I was a lieutenant at TBS. Y'all know if you remember doing Amfax, where they put you on the ship for the a, a night or so. I'll never forget walking through again. My company was had a, had a lot of black folks in it, and I remember walking through with you know two of my friends, black female officers as well, who I'm still very very close with. Shout out to you guys; they know who they are. I love y'all. Um, that they, uh, I never forget two black female sailors. I mean, they had to be you know E twos or E threes. I don't I don't recall, but they were pretty junior. And I remember they stopped us. It was like, ma'ams. Not ladies, but ma'ams. <laughs> it was like we've never seen something like this before, and um, they didn't have their phone. They definitely was like, "Can we take a picture?" Like, you know, what? Well, if we have our phone, we want to take a picture with y'all. And I remember just being like, "Wow, like, damn, like they really, really don't see." They're not used to seeing us, you know, in these spaces. And that was when I was a young lieutenant, so I knew. Again, this is just further reiterating: I'm putting on for everybody. I can't mess this up. Right. And, you know, that was again in 2012, 2012, you know, so, you know, really thinking about that. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I still carry that experience. And, um, 
you know, to the point, you know, to your original question, post-deployment, I had a lot of um, Black staff and CEOs come up to me and tell me that they always they always were proud of, you know, seeing me do my thing and being successful. And they were, they were really appreciated, appreciative of, you know, you know, the things that I did, but no one ever told me when I was doing it. So, so when I'm in it, I'm, I was secondly, con- you know, you know, uh, excuse me, constantly second guessing myself. Um, and, you know, you know, am I doing it right? You know, am I being successful? Um, again, you know, driving, driving towards results and never just enjoying the moment, and just, you know, you, you know, enjoying the fact that um, that there were, you know, some Marines who were looking up to me. I never I never paused to think about that. I was just so concerned about not messing it up. Um, but I was grateful for every officer who told me on the back end that, hey, you saw you, you know, do your thing in Afghanistan or in Australia or whatever. You know, we were proud of you. Um, and that was always as my dad called that was that was always a much needed psychological salary that I needed to kind of carry forth to the next you know the next billet assignment um but when I was in it I just I never knew I had the wall up I never opened myself up to receive it if it was there um so I was just so concerned now I apologize if I, if I sound ignorant because I'm an infantry officer so I had you know I'm used to all male units and we had to squat mm-hmm. and everything for a lot y'all had a co-ed unit I'm assuming obviously if you're a platoon commander yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we definitely had, you know, men and women, you know, as squad leaders. Um, my platoon sergeant was a woman when I went to Afghanistan. When I came back from my um, second deployment, my um, company first sergeant as a CEO was a, you know, was a woman. So, you know, you know, we've, you know, we've had those um, uh, co-ed units uh, for. I've never known anything else other than a co-ed unit. So, and I, you know, so, you know, getting, you know, getting joined to one four in 2015, I was like, yeah, this is normal. And they're like, how do we do this? I'm like, just, just, just exist. <laughs> you, know? you know, you know, it, it was funny that, you know, everyone just were, were walking on eggshells around us. And we were like, just, just exist, you know, you know, you, you know, we'll figure it out, you know, we'll find the heads on our own or, you know, you, you know, we'll create birthing areas for ourselves, you know, you know, for just, you know, uh, you know, ease of, you know, control and hygiene or whatever. But, you know, we, you know, for us, it wasn't a big deal. And to see, you know, the empty unit just really have just a mental conundrum to figure it out back then was, uh, to, to say the least, entertaining, uh, to say the least. But I, I get it. If that's not what you're used to, you know, particularly some of those older gunning, staff sergeants, lieutenant colonels, majors, they literally never, never dealt with us being in their space much less co-locating with them. So I know that was a real challenge. I really tried to lean in on that and, you know, try to be a problem solver in that, in that, in, in that regard. And as at the time I was a senior uh, woman officer uh, for that unit. Um, so that was my problem to solve um, as a senior first lieutenant, I guess that sounds weird, but that's what I was. <laughs> hey, it didn't hit me until I think we had a reporter come to my battalion one time and they're like, Oh, can I use the female's restroom? And I was like, we have a female yes. <laughs> I don't even know. But it- that yeah, that's how it was. I remember before we went to Australia, we did a planning unit with one four, planning meeting with one four back on Pendleton. And I'd never been I think I think they were in Horno or um you know, I think I got the unit right. I, I forget that base so damn big. Um and I'd never been inside any of the buildings. And I went in there and said, Hey, you know, where's the head man? He's like, Oh, I, I don't know. 
<laughs> I was like, oh, guess I'm holding it. All right. So I just, I just held it. I just held it until the meeting was over and I, and I could find the PX on the way out. So yeah, it's a thing. Well, the, re- the reason I'm asking is because when talk about, you know, lifting as we climb, being a female, mm-hmm. position of power, mm-hmm. how was it when you came down to putting other women in positions of leadership that were under you? You know, because one of the things I found out was, you know, I used to think that the Marines, you know, let's be honest, black people, they're kind of looking at like, is this person down for the cause? Can I talk to him? Which way does he go? And I always thought who you dated, right? That's what I thought. I thought it was represented. I know, whatever, right? I thought that's what the Marines, the list of Marines measuring stick was. But I found out like recently, and I'm talking about recently, probably within the last like two years, because one of my a Marine I served with, he teaches boxing mm-hmm. with me on my for-profit arm. And uh, he told me mm-hmm. that black Marines looked at us as black officers based off of uh, whether or not we had black squad leaders. Huh. You know, I hadn't, I had not heard that. Um, and I do think the dynamics in the infantry unit are a lot different than in, in a logistics unit. Um, so, so that, that probably looked a little different, but um, I was always proud when I could, um, you know, promote one of my deserving NCOs to section leader or, uh, um, uh, you know, vehicle commander, uh, you know, as a, as a motor T platoon commander, because it was important. And again, I had it, um, I think I had it pretty good with the female platoon sergeant because I think we were, you know, we were both ruthless. Um, she's a first arm now, shout out to first arm Kashi, but, um, you know, we were, you know, we demanded everyone's best, right? You know, we were, we demanded a lot of our in, in, in entire platoon. So we were only moving people up that were, you know, you know, that could handle it. And I was always happy when I could get, you know, one of the female NCOs. But I never forget, sometimes she would look at me, she'd be like, ma'am, she ain't it. And I'm like, okay, and that always hurt. It hurt. You know, it's like, hang on it. I wanted, you know, I, you know, I wanted to create opportunities for, you know, the female NCOs to leave, but I refused to put a female NCO in there for the sake of putting a female NCO at the role if they weren't prepared to hold that particular position. And so I always felt that internal conflict of, you know, how do I, you know, how do I create space for the women leaders in my unit so that way the men can see that we can be competent leaders as women as well. But how do I also groom them for that position? If they weren't ready, I always saw that as my fault as a platoon commander. How do I get them ready? Um, so, you know, when it always hurt when I just, when they just weren't ready to be put there or, or they were there and they messed up, I always felt it personally. I was like, damn it. You know, I was like, because I knew for the wrong male Marine, that was just another check in the box for a reason why women shouldn't be in the Marine Corps. So I was always very sensitive to that, very, very sensitive to that, as I was for myself. Um, you know, that like, you know, any, any, any small nudge in the wrong direction was going to be registered, you know, by the, you know, by the junior male Marine who came off of, um, you know, San Diego and never had a female instructor, uh, a female DI, right? The first time they saw a female was when they got to CLB1, right? Um, so, you know, so I was always very, you know, very sensitive to that and always wanted to make sure that they were prepared before they did that, um, mainly because that was just important to the success of the unit, right? I didn't want nobody who couldn't leave leading. Um, but, you know, I always had the added weight of um, if they did mess up, I knew that that could have you know, catastrophic, uh, maybe that's a larger word that I need to use, but, you know, catastrophic social, um, you know, you know, uh, uh, metrics for the male Marines in my unit. 
that was always something I was thinking about all the time, all the time. And I had a platoon commander, female platoon commander as an XO. You know, I was I was definitely hard on her. I was like, make sure we're doing this, you know, not only because she because she was my motor T platoon commander and I just came off being a motor T platoon commander, but I knew that whatever she did um, was going to be judged by the males. And, and 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 it was it was everything that she did. You know, my male company commander was always in my ear about it more so than the male platoon commanders that I had. Um, and so I tried to protect her, but I also wanted to see her succeed, too. So all that mattered. Um and it was subtle. And I don't think any of it was malicious. I think it was well-intentioned, but I even I caved into that and tried to make sure that, you know, she looked good all the time, was always doing the right things. Um, and I should have, you know, I wish I had, you know, challenged that back then, but I didn't. I played right into it and, you know, tried to, you know, tried to make sure that she, you know, was good on the surface. Um, uh, but, you know, there was, you know, there were, there were things I wish I had said probably to really combat that notion, you know, to get, to make sure we're all being treated fairly. Were you, but I couldn't see that. Were you afraid to fail anytime? If, if, if you've been listening to this podcast, I, that's all I was afraid of ever. That's all I was always afraid of was afraid of failing because failure meant I was failing for everybody else. Um, failing put a mark on every other black woman that came behind me or ahead of me. Um, so I was always afraid of failing. That that kept me up at night. Do you think sometimes that prevents us from growing and learning and taking risks? You know, because I'll tell you, as an entrepreneur, I learn all the time from failing. I'm like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, I can't do that anymore. But now I know. But I know when you're an yeah. officer and you're a black officer, it feels so straight and narrow. You feel like this is the only chance you'll ever get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and you know, it always felt the way. I always felt like you know, somehow somebody just took a chance on me and I couldn't, you know, excuse my French. I couldn't fuck it up. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, and that, you know, that's, you know, you, you know, that's the weight I carry. Um, you know, everything, everything matters so much more than, you know, my own personal fit rep. Everything always, always had, you know, these, you know, these impacts beyond, you know, you know, you know, Tracy's little bubble, um, at least in my mind. Um, and there were times where it was validated, like I mentioned with the female platoon commander that I have not, you know, when I was an XO. Everything she did was how, you know, you know, you know, that was negative. You know, the peers around me always had something to say about it and that contributed to how they viewed other women officers, to include how they viewed me based off of what she did or didn't do and me. And, you know, the same for her with whatever I did or didn't do. Um, and so when it's, you know, so, so when it's validated like that in front of you, you, you become very aware of how you perform and if you succeed or fail. Um, and, 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 you know, taking a risk, you know, is to you, you know, or to me at the time that felt like, you know, taking a risk felt like I was really kind of, you know, you know, taking a risk of my entire career. <laughs> um, you know, that that's definitely a little, you know, overinflated thought. Um, but it definitely felt like I had a little less room, you know, to kind of misstep um than, you know, some of my male counterparts, uh, because that would, you know, impact uh, you know, some of those um behind closed door conversations that would, you know, advance a- advance your career. Um, which we all know that those happen and they continue to happen. Um, so yeah, always, always in the forefront or I don't say forefront, but that was always part of how I, how I moved for sure. So eventually you became an instructor at the basic school, which is like the flagship school for all Marine officers, like mm-hmm. the finish school. Mm-hmm. 
Talk to us mm-hmm. about that process. I know you said before, like you're coming in on a mission. You got your wall up. And if for our listeners out there that aren't familiar, they only send the best of the best to this school. So you ain't if you're an instructor at the basic school, they're they're expecting you to lead the next generation officers. So the pressure and the ability to perform is probably a lot higher, I would imagine, than anywhere anywhere else. And I just want to know from your perspective how you dealt with that and how you were represent for the culture too. Yeah, the the pressure was definitely on. Um, I probably I, I probably doubled down on the wall. I probably put on two two or three masks when I was when I was there. Um, it was it was tough. Um, you know, there it, it, it just everything um, that I said. So so the added complexity to being an instructor at TBS, which we all know uses, you know, infantry tactics and structure as a vehicle to teach, you know, leadership lessons. Um, add on the fact that I, I am an infantry officer, nowhere near combat arms, you know, my credibility was questioned. I had a former student reach out to me uh, probably a couple weeks ago and, um, and just kind of casually mentioned, he's like, yeah, you know, we... You know, you know, I felt, you know, I, I felt bad for you. I was like, I, I was like, what do you mean? He was like, every time you said something, people just questioned it because you were an infantry officer, and you know, you just always, you know, you know, check people, and so people just hated you because you were a woman and not an infantry officer. So no one ever trusted what you said. And I was like, damn, damn, and like I thought that was the case, but for it to be validated like that, I was like, yeah, that's like that was why I carried myself the way I did because I knew that. Everything I did was being questioned through the lens of, you know, is she, you know, is what she's saying, you know, grounded in any credibility. Um, you know, it didn't matter how many deployments I had. It didn't matter where I deployed. It mattered that I was an infantry officer. And then tackle on I'm a woman. I'm teaching, you know, 90% male, you know, unit, you know, every time they come through, you know, tack that on and then, you know, you know, we're not even going to tackle on race, you know, as, as, you know, as the added layer, you know, it just, you know, everything was just kind of compounded for me at TBS. So I just really, um, it was, it was emotionally draining for me, um, you know, at the basic school. And I talked to several of my fellow black women officers trying to get them to, you know, list, list TBS, you know, in their be billet, you know, um, submissions or asks to their to their uh, uh monitors and not a single one was even interested in coming back they're like hell no i ain't going back there because they remember how it felt as a student you're being judged you're being questioned you're not really respected blatantly and you know subtly and 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 they dance right want to experience that as an instructor and so when that young man confirmed it for me Years later, I was like, God damn, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, like, like that, you know, that was like, I knew that was happening, but for it to be, you know, you know, validated, you know, it's uh, sad, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I was always worried about that, um, was always concerned. Uh, but I think all that did for me was just, you know, turn off, you know, the, the human sensor, right? I, again, I never felt like I had space to be, you know, uh, authentic. I never felt like I had space to really show my full breadth of humanity as an officer to the lieutenants. I just never felt like I could do that. Um, even when they demanded it of me, I still was 
it felt awkward doing it because in my mind, it's like, okay, make sure you show them, you know, that you're on, you got to be on. And it just, you know, it just, it, it made for some awkward interactions with some, you know, with some of my students and made, uh, for some sleepless nights for me, just, just everything always compounded. And I'm not, you know, I, I feel like I'm complaining right now. I'm making all these damn excuses, but, um, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to just be, you know, as honest as possible. Like, you know, these are the things that were going through my head. Um, and these impacted how I perform. And I think if you look back, you can see that, you know, yes, I've been successful, but it always came at the expense of the Marines that I was in charge of. And that, that, that's the shit that keeps me up at night still to this day that, you know, I didn't, I didn't do right by them all the time because damn it, I can't be the black woman who messes this up. You know, I can't be the black woman who was too soft and, you know, let her Marines go. And I still had moments where I felt like I was being too soft or being too, you know, too nice. And, you know, what do those words even mean, right? What do those phrases even mean? You know, all those things compounded a lot and just, you know, it was even worse at TBS and it just, it just kind of, uh, erupted for me and and I think I got a little better in my last year at just being who I who I was um when I finally started to realize I can claim who I am and I can just lead how I want to lead but again I just it just felt like I was leading you know you know me leading how I wanted to was at the expense of something else and it was never you know and it, it was never for you know for the good of any other union or you know at the uh you know, ask or demand of my, you know, of my commander. So I always felt like there was a trade-off. It was never just leading, just to be leading. And I always felt like there was a trade-off. And I just don't think that, you know, my white male counterparts had this much damn mental dialogue when they set them from the Marines as an SPC or as an instructor. They just, they just didn't have that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. I took on a lot. Um, and it just, uh, I think that manifested in some pretty, um, uh, uh, st- um, what's the word I want to use, uh, some uh, strained relationships that I probably had the opportunity to build as an SBC that I just didn't foster um, because I was just so afraid of just not, you know, performing or, or meeting their expectations um, for, you know, for all, all my black women peers who were out in the fleet, right? I didn't want to you know, set them up for the okie dokie either. So I had to make sure I was, um, you know, I was on a hundred percent as much as I possibly could be. Um, but you know, that, that took me down emotionally, took me down the side every time. Um, so I definitely started to probably sacrifice my own well-being because of that. Do you feel like you weren't perceived as a black woman? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a tough question to answer. I think. Um, Let me reframe. I think for some, go ahead, go I, ahead. I can reframe it for you, right? So I did this. Uh, I'm a, my master's in American studies, y'all. All right, and one of the papers <laughs> I wrote was about what it would look like for uh, females in the infantry, and I used three movies as an example. One movie was, uh, I think it was like Courage Under Fire, and it kind of goes back to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this movie about mm-hmm. this female Marine officer who gets shot down in. Uh, Iraq, but because she was a female, people assumed that there was something wrong that led her to getting shot down, you know? And so you kind of follow this timeline of these three different stories. Uh, one of them is right, but it kind of, you know, one is like the worst case. Mm-hmm. She's a coward. The other one is like, mm-hmm. she's fighting it out like the guys, you know, taking it down. So there's that mm-hmm. base of it. Mm-hmm. The second one was like um, Starship Troopers, right? Where it was like co-ed. So, you know, <laughs> you got the female infantry, you got the guy infantry, they're showering together and everything. And then the last movie was G.I. Jane, 
right? And in GI Jane, she goes through female SEAL training, all right? Mm-hmm. And she comes in very, just very feminine, you know, it's got the heels and the stockings. And by the end of the movie, she's telling another guy to suck her dick. <laughs> So you kind of see this transformation of, and I I basically framed this paper as at the end, is it the example of females we want is what I'm getting at. Did she have to Mm -hmm. kind of sacrifice her femininity? If I I might be making up Mm -hmm. a word to assimilate assimilate and be the ideal version of what it looks like to be a Mm -hmm. female in the combat arms. And so by the time they go through this transformation, is it what we really Mm -hmm. want in the first place? Yeah, Um, I will say that's probably the undoing that I ended up feeling like I had to do was to not be as feminine. And I remember my mom always saying, you don't have to lose your femininity to be a good leader. Um, I remember her telling me that, and I remember never believing her. I remember always questioning that, um, and not because of who she was or what she experienced, but just because I never saw room for that. I never saw room for it. Um, and so uh, I don't I don't know, uh, you know, how any of the students, you know, view, you know, view me as far as, you know, do they see me as a black woman or not? I don't I don't have a firm answer to that. I know the black lieutenants took notice. I know that. I do know that because many of them told me, um, you know, after they graduated or something like that. Um but I can't speak for anybody else. You know, you know, they didn't, they either didn't share it or again, my wall was up so damn high. I never heard it. Um, so, you know, so I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, and I wish I had, uh, matured, matured enough to, to be open to that kind of feedback, um, and matured enough to be able to, um, demonstrate that. Uh, you know, you know, for those students, both women and men, that, you know, who you are as a leader shouldn't be based on those things. Um, but, I, you know, I was wrapped around the axle about the wrong thing. So I think I, I never gave myself the space to, to even see that much. Well, you're clearly successful. So you were doing something right. Like I, said, <laughs> I just want our audience to do understand you make trade-offs. You know, there is yeah. this sense. And then sometimes I think, too, people don't really get to know us. And so when we do come out, it's mm-hmm. this mad. Mm-hmm. Like Nate said on the episode, people are like, I can't, um, I can't tell you no more. Like, you weren't like that when I was working with you. Right. It's like, yo, there were power dynamics at play. You didn't, but we saw them and we lived it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, man, that's so real. And shout out to Nate. It's, you, know, I, you know, he and I were in Pendleton together. And uh, I mean, you know, it's very real. Like, you know, you, you know, you, you spend so much time stifling who you are or, you know, stifling any stereotypes and code switching and defeminizing yourself as a woman, um, you know, to be a leader and, you know, absolutely, you know, trying to rid, you know, certain cultural markings, just, I don't mean like physical markings, but, you know, cultural trade, you know, uh, trademarks, if you will, for lack of better words right now, just, you know, just to get along. And ain't that a damn shame? Um, and once I and once I kind of stood back, I was like, I don't want to keep leading like that. Um, and I didn't, I didn't start to see examples of that until people were damn lieutenant colonels and colonels. I was like, shit, I can't get like that until I'm, you know, that senior, and I'm still carving space out for myself, and I'm still seeing them getting challenged by white male officers in these meetings, and they're still getting, you know, getting challenged. I'm like, damn, you can't even just. 
lead to be led. You know, it's got to be, you know, you know, like, you know, I, I have seen black officers challenged both behind closed doors with my fellow captains or lieutenants um, more often than I've seen my white uh, senior, you know, senior officers be be challenged both both to their face and, you know, and and behind closed doors. And um, I, I wasn't <clears throat> I wasn't uh, comfortable enough calling that out. Um, and, and to some degree, I didn't really catch it until it was already done. <laughs> I'm like, did they, you know, they didn't, they didn't question so-and-so when she said that, they questioned it when he said that, or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and it just, um, you know, it, it you know, it, it uh, again, cause I'm so busy trying to survive. I'm not even catching it when it's happening in front of me, when it's happening in front of me. So I think there were definitely some times where that, you know, where that, definitely manifests and um is sad and you know when you know when you got all these questions like you know why don't we have black male generals or you know excuse me black generals or why don't you know why don't black folks want to be company commanders i think i think that second question is false black you know black officers do want to be company commanders uh you know we're not necessarily running away from the opportunity but i think which you are running away from, not the opportunity, but from the ruthless scrutinization that you have seen before you got to that role. You know you're going to be scrutinized in a totally different way from not not just your peers or superiors, but also from your subordinates. Like this, so I go back to the story of, of, of lieutenants questioning my credibility as a captain. You know, I'm like, damn, like, I have seen some things like, I mean, I know everything, but I have seen some things, but for you to question it because I don't have the MOS or the bravado that you expect, um, you're questioning everything that I say. And when you see that um, happening in front of you as you're coming up through the ranks, you you know, maybe that's the reason, you know, why, you know, the ones who do actually turn down command, allegedly, I don't believe that's true, but allegedly turned down command maybe that's the reason why um you're always worried about that um as you as you you know as you're taking on those leadership positions and you know huge shout out to those who have you know stood in the you know stood in the boots of commanders as you know black officers male or female and and and, and i know i know they carried a whole different weight whether they talk about it or not um if you had a black commander know that they carry some weight they absolutely carry some weight and they were they were they were they were doing 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 a little bit extra to make sure they were unequivocally um seen as a competent leader unfortunately it doesn't just happen in the marine corps as you know as black people in this country people are always questioning whether or not we're we're qualified for the roles we find ourselves in mm-hmm. um that's, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to get to that as we continue on but before we I want to before I ask you, you know, what led you to get out the Marine Corps and everything, I do want to ask you as a black female officer, what was it like being in the Marine Corps in the midst of Ferguson and Baltimore around that time? I know you say you had your wall up. Uh and I I on my end, yo, me and my boy, we kept people guessing. You know, we just kind of yeah. gave the dirt. We just didn't play. We were neutral. We're not talking about it. Don't ask us about it. But deep down, you know, we were fired up inside because I lived in a house with five black officers. And so you best believe the conversations were happening there. But like you say, the space didn't exist. And the space I saw was toxic. People like mm-hmm. going there and fucking shoot them and all this kind of stuff. I'm just like, yo, man, crazy. Yeah, I, 
I had a very strict personal policy um, where I didn't talk about uh, social occurrences. I didn't talk about, you know, any social trends. I didn't talk about politics at work. The wall was up. Um, so the the thing that I can, the feeling that I can equate it to um, is the is to be you know how you when you're a kid you try to hold your breath underwater and try to see who can hold her breath the longest um i was never going to not win that competition i was always going to hold my breath the longest um no matter how much i struggled and so i never talked about it in uniform i talked about it with the friends offline in the group chats right you best believe that was always on um but even still, I mean, you know, this is this is what I think is, you know, for sure something that a lot of a lot of black leaders in corporate America feel. You go to work knowing you 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 know the officer or the enlisted marine who's going to be at that you know uh, command meeting, you know, right before you know those few minutes before the CEO walks in talking shit about what just happened on the news. You know who they are, you know, who, and you just try to put them some physical and mental distance in between you and them so you don't get triggered at work and you don't show your hand, right? You don't want to ever have to come up for air because it feels like you just can't breathe when you're in that environment. And so I would always just kind of brace myself mentally. Um, and I would say in many ways, I tuned it out um, when I put the uniform on and I became really desensitized to that. Um, and I got accustomed to being, you know, you know, to taking that neutral stance, uh, that, that neutral stance was always very comfortable. And it wasn't again until probably my last year on active duty where I became a little more comfortable, um, sharing my experience or sharing my thoughts about it. Um, and even still it was very measured. It was very, okay, I'm going to say this much. I'm going to say it like this. And I got to say it in some slight agreement, agreements to, you know, what's being said or, pick and choose, and most importantly, pick and choose who I say it to. Because I ain't going to stand in the middle of a crowd of any, any Marine, any group of Marines and share that thought, right? You got to, as you mentioned before, you got, you know, the people who are, as me and my friends to call it, who are down, you know, you know, what, you know, which, you know, which, which group of Marines that you can, you know, kind of let, you know, let slip your thoughts or your perception of what, you know, you know, what's happening, you know, the current, the current state of the world. And so you just, you just, you just never know who you can trust. Um, and you never know how something that you say that is your truth can somehow get turned against you or somehow, um, you know, made to believe that you aren't, uh, you know, worthy of Marine. I'll never forget someone saying, well, if you believe that, then how are you fighting for this country? I'm like, damn, like, now, you know, so now my damn patriotism is being questioned. Got it. You know, cause I didn't, you know, raise my, you know, you know, raise my right hand and, you know, you know, recite the same oath as you, you know, like clearly, right. You know, just because of what I said. And so just, you know, when you have that in the back of your head, you're very careful about how you portray your, 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 uh, your, your thoughts and beliefs and uniforms. It was, you know, it was like wearing, wearing a damn straight jacket every damn day, uh, particularly during that time. And how about now? <laughs> Gloves are off, man. I don't even care. Um, it's, it's past time to, uh, to be vocal. Um, again, everything I'm saying is there are things that I'm saying in hindsight. I, I think just as a woman have grown 
And I just refuse to not claim the space that I have shot away from or felt like was taken or felt like wasn't there. I'm just taking up space that has never been uh, willingly given to me. And so I'm not going to be quiet about the things that are plaguing Black Americans. I'm not going to be quiet about issues that we face in professional spaces. I'm not going to be quiet about the injustices that Black Americans face day in and day out. Um, whether you're aware of it or not, I just, I can't be quiet. Um, and no one should. I mean, you know, we're, we're very quickly coming up on roughly about, what, five months from the death of George Floyd. And, um, you know, you know, I'll be honest, I think the, the, the incident the Sunday before George Floyd was killed in Central Park, um, was Amy Brown, I forgot her name, but the uh, the businesswoman who called the cops on the man because he asked her to put her dog on a leash and she cried wolf. I mean, that probably impacted me way more than George Floyd's death because that for the first time was just such a blatant display, such a blatant demonstration of the, um, the use of racial violence against black people. Um, and the blatant display of privilege and knowing you have that privilege and knowing that you can make a call and raise your voice eight or 10 damn octaves to get the response that you want because you don't like what's happening to you, you know, by, by a black man, like, damn, like that, that, that hit me hard. Um, and she, you know, she graduated from a, a business school that's up the street from the one I attend now. And so when I saw that, I was like, damn, this could be anybody in the classroom next to me right now. This could be anybody that, you know, that feels like they can do that so, so, so freely and didn't even think about it. She never thought twice about doing that. Um, and that's scary. And so I, you know, you know, my work now, my personal work now is to, is to really just denounce that um, and, and, to, and to make sure that people understand the ways in which those microaggressions lead to those events, you know, lead to the Central Parks and how those microaggressions lead to the George Floyds, right? Like, like you got to understand the things that you don't correct in the workspace, the things that you let go, the conversations behind the closed doors, the things that you center yourself from hearing and or saying um, lead to those kinds of blatant displays of racial violence. And we just can't keep being quiet. And that's everybody. When I say we, I do mean everybody, but it's on Black folks to make sure that we are consistently uh, not allowing those things to go in front of us if we see it. Um, but, you know, we get tired too. Um, we've been tired. Let's be clear. That's why I call it the Fed Uprising. Um, but I try to take that energy and, and inspire others to see it how I see it and, and join this work with me. And the work for me is to bring awareness to it and to actively combat it. Have, have the conversations with your family and your friends who are having these offline conversations about, you know, racism and, you know, use, you know, utilizing these, you know, racial slurs, like all that shit adds up to those kinds of incidences. And, and, and we just, we just can't have that. I can't speak for all black veterans, but I'm telling you, I'm speaking for me. I'm taking my space, right? All Crazy yeah. far right wing yeah. marching, tiki, tiki torches, and all this kind of stuff. People are hijacking the veterans. That ain't me. You know, I can't yeah. speak for everybody. That ain't me, man. I'm a proud African American veteran. I serve my country. I am the fucking Malcolm X, the James Baldwin. You know, you throw it off. It bothers me, Tracy. It it bothers me that we've allowed people to hijack our space and they, they don't. 
they don't mm. speak for us. And, you know, one reason the mm-hmm. platform is so important for me is because I've got to own that market. You know, I don't see anybody out there mm-hmm. doing it. And so I'm using yeah. this as a way to do it. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm so grateful for you, brother, because I, you know, you know, we gotta, we gotta create, you know, create these spaces. We so busy waiting on somebody to give it to us. We just gotta create it. We gotta, we gotta take it up um, until, until those spaces are equally accessed, um, equally distributed. Um, you know, we just gotta unequally create it um, until, until we are recognized as valued in this society um, in every in every industry, every field, every function. And, and, and until then, we just have to continue to create that space and, um, you know, make sure that we are heard and that we have created platforms for others to also share. So I appreciate what you're doing. I said that before, and I, I just, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate what you're doing in the platform that you're creating for Black veterans and for others to hear uh, you know, what we've experienced here. I'm sorry, y'all. When she said I'm taking off the gloves, I got fired up. Yo, my legs start twitching. You got to see me on camera. I'm, I'm like, yo, I'm not just, yo, but let me, let, me, let me bring it back down because she's, she's, yeah. So, so Tracy, why, what made you um, get out? Talk to us about your transition out. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of took a step back and realized, um, I think, I think, I think the key thing was, again, I was starting to, not like how I was, you know, you know, kind of moving forward as a leader. And I felt like, again, I didn't have the space to really be the leader that I wanted to as long as I was on active duty. Um, I really did feel that way. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know what it meant, meant to take up space yet. So that was kind of, you know, one of the, one of the top things. Um, but most importantly for me, I wanted to do something different. Um, shit, at that time, for about 30 years of my life, um, I'm 32 now, um, all I knew was the Marine Corps, from my parents to when I joined. Um, you know, there's a whole world out here beyond, you know, beyond the, you know, illustrious Corps, and I didn't know much about it. And I felt like I was reaching that point in my career where I could leave and learn learn about it and still have, have, have a pretty decent second career, or... I was going to commit to EWS, which I was selected for and stay in. And, you know, you know, when you get EWS, you got that commitment and then no shit next thing you know, you get promoted to major. And the next thing you know, you're, <laughs> you just kind of keep racking up these commitments. So I was like, well, I can stay in and never explore anything else. Or I can um, take this time right now and pivot, uh, you know, you know, right, right, right in that gap between that long-term commitment and the short-term commitment. And quite frankly, I had, um, held every billet that I thought I wanted to hold. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to be a platoon commander. I knew I wanted to go back to a, a B billet that was in a training environment and, you know, blessed me with that. Um, you know, at, at, at TVS, I really didn't, um, want to do, um, anything else, um, in, in, in the Marine Corps. And I know my parents were definitely like, Oh no, we thought you would stay in. I mean, everybody said that. I thought you would stay in, um, and, you know, you know, I love my parents, but I can never be them. First of all, you know, first of all, I wasn't listed, so I can never be them. But, um, you know, they, you know, they, they left a, an, an, an incredible legacy in the Marine Corps and their boots were always too big to fill. So I never tried to fill them. I just tried to just do the right thing, you know, as I, as I knew how. Um, and so I felt like I had, you know, done all the things that I had set out to do. And it was, it was just time to move on. So you decided to go to business school, start joining corporate America. How, how are you preparing for that transition coming from the military? Because, you know, they can be very similar too. you talk about that space. 
you know, and that mm-hmm. wall, how did you take the wall down for your transformation into, you know, business school and everything and do it differently than your I just did. I went in fearlessly. I had to I had to take it off. I had to take a leap of faith. Um, I had a lot of anxiety behind, you know, being a military, you know, being a veteran in, in a business school. Like there's, you know, there's just some jargon you just don't know. <laughs> like they're over talking about some returns and risk free. I was like, what are they talking about again? And so, you know, so you just have like this natural, you know, anxiety behind, um, uh, you know, there's just some, some context that you lack given your professional experience. Like, yes, you can look back and be like, all right, I spent eight years in the military, but damn, I don't, I don't even know what half of the stuff is that we're talking about in class. Um, and so some of my other peers who spent eight years in whatever workforce, you know, you know, they, it just always seemed like they have much more context than I ever could bring to the table. So um, first I had to get comfortable with, you know, being the veteran who um, knew more about leadership, but didn't know much more about anything else that we talked about in class. And granted, we only got one leadership class. I, I, outside of that class, I wasn't, at least I didn't feel like I, I could contribute that much to the class. Um, so once I kind of got comfortable with like, look, we're all here to learn. Um, I just, I just took the mask off. I said, you know what? I, I can't afford to keep hiding behind this notion or this perspective or, uh, you know, you know, th- you know, this notion of leadership or this, or, you know, you know what I should and shouldn't be this, you know, this perception. So I just, d- just decided I just wasn't going to do that anymore. And so the idea of me, you know, taking up space really, I didn't start manifesting that until this, you know, this past year as a business school student where I just said, you know, I'm just going to be exactly who I am. There's going to be some things I don't know, but that means I got to ask the questions. There's going to be some things I feel pretty comfortable with, but that comes with a sense of humility when I'm demonstrating it. Um, and so I always, you know, you know, kept that in the back of my head, you know, as I showed up in class or showed up in these spaces as a student. Um, but I mean, I have some dark days, you know, I have some days where, you know, I doubted myself, you know, how did I get into business school? Why am I here? I'm with all these incredibly smart, talented, accomplished people, like, you know, like I don't deserve to be here. Um, you know, you know, that imposter syndrome is very, very real. Um, and once I realized that we were all experiencing that, I said, well, damn, okay, well, let's just get away with it. Let's just, or do away with it. You know, let's just, let's just show up how we are. Let's just agree to learn. Let's, let's just agree to agree, uh, agree to support each other as students and let's just move forward. Um, you know, I just, I just needed to do that for myself. And I think, again, I think that came just my own personal maturation and just really realizing that I never wanted to go back to, to the, to the leader that I was as a Lieutenant, as a captain, I didn't remember. I said, I didn't, I didn't like how I was leading. I didn't like how I was projecting. I didn't like how empathetic I wasn't. Um, so I just vowed to just never do that again. And so I just, I, I needed to be the exact opposite and, and what a fresh start then, you know, what a fresher start that, you know, you know, just being in business school and just start all over again. Um, and just, and, and, you know, taking all that I learned, all the pain, all the, all the hard lessons, all the failures, the personal failures, the leadership failures, and really just taking that and go, okay, I'll learn this from that. Let's not repeat that. And that's, that's been what, that's what I've been holding, holding myself to, um, every day at business school. Don't let her, don't let her downplay herself, y'all. I was on with her interviewing her and she put me on some game on my, on my next venture. <laughs> so don't, don't sleep on her, man. She hit me with, so I was like, God, all right. Yeah, isn't it interesting how we can go, especially for us? I mean, everybody suffers from imposter syndrome, but I always wonder about like us going to these elite places and these elite institutions and coming out of it and still feeling like we're somehow not enough. 
And I yeah. think about like, damn, what does that mean for like my kids in Newark that go to damn, you know, mm. William Patterson or something, you know, yeah. like, damn. Yeah. So I think, um, I don't know, man, it's a hard, I don't want to call it hard, but it is something I'm very aware of. And I just want to make sure mm-hmm. I would like to help people work through that. Yeah. Um, that's so important. And the, the work you do with Ironbound is just, is just so important. People got to really believe in themselves and believe their ability to succeed and believe in their own, their own narrative in order to be successful. And, you know, you, you just, you, you know, it's, you know, you, you know, what I wish for you and, you know, you know, you know, with Ironbound is that you are creating an environment where those young men can really, can really embrace their whole selves and be comfortable showing up no matter what the world tells them that, you know, is wrong or right about how they show up. And one thing I'm starting to appreciate and probably just start to denounce is that there is no way to be or way to show up and way to perform. The only damn way is your way. They either hate it or love it. And if they hate it, you don't want to be there anyway. Um, if they love it, that's the place you should be. Um, and I know that sounds rosy and that sounds really cliche, but, you know, that really has been the, you know, the direction that, that I have chosen to go is like, you know, I just, I just can't keep living for other people and I can't keep leading for other people. I can only lead the way that I know how to lead and I'm a stumble. I'm going to learn. I'm going to say some wrong things. I'm going to piss some people off. I'm going to, you know, do some things right. I'm going to do some things wrong. But as long as I keep trying, as long as I keep turning that mirror back on myself and seeing what I did and did, you know, what I did and didn't do, um, that's the only way that I can keep going forward. But I got to create that space for myself. And then I got to find, find an environment, a workplace that will allow me to do that um, and to and to learn from those mistakes. And that kind of comes down to workplace culture, which is probably the best part about not being in the ring corps is that I can choose a workplace culture. If I don't like how that leader leaves, I ain't got to go, <laughs> you know, unlike the, you know, unlike the Marine Corps, you know, you know, where you got a toxic workplace code, you just kind of got to protect your Marines as best you can and try to, you know, shield them from the BS, right? You just got to, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and keep it moving. Now, you know, as a civilian, like, mm, I don't like that unit or that, uh, you know, that company, I'm not going to go there. Um, and, 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 and what, uh, uh, just, just a sense of relief that has been for me as I, you know, you know, start, you know, start, you know, start the recruiting process, uh, for, uh, for next year as I graduate, it's been, it's been awesome. Like, you know what, I don't want to work there and I don't have to, <laughs> I just don't, um, you know, so all of that kind of, you know, has been scaling up in that way. And it's been, it's been, um, it's been humbling, um, but it's been, uh, it's created a sense of relief that, that I've not known before. Before we close things out, I still got a couple more questions I got to ask you. I got to use your brain because, you know, you're a leader, you're a female. And I think it's important for people to kind of hear this stuff now. But in this George Floyd era, right, we have to be conscious of Americans that the fact of the way we've been doing things hasn't been working. It's kind of got us in this position. And when I think of us as black people in the civil rights era, you know, we implemented some strategies. We thought one of one was going to work and this and that was going to work. And then we find ourselves where, again, we're isolated. These things aren't working. We don't have CEOs. We don't have black entrepreneurs. You know, we like, it's a whole mess. My question to you is how do we create, I'm going to use your word, space. How do we empower the next generation that's come behind us to do it different and to do it better so that we can not only create that space, but we can own that space and in an authentic 
way so we don't have to have these walls. And it's this fact of like, yo, when my son or my daughter shows up, I want them to view him. You know, I know damn that don't see color. He's black. Accept it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that really comes with a sense of empowerment. Um, I got to pause and give my parents some credit. Um, I never once thought growing up that I couldn't accomplish something because I was a little girl or that I couldn't be something because I was black. They never once allowed that mindset in the household. They never once um, created that. It was the outside world, to be honest. That kind of really put that in my mind. It was never my own parents. And so I think we need to empower our young young, um, leaders and our young kids to know who they are and love who they are um, first and foremost and to teach them the potential threats to that which are some naysayers, some folks who don't believe that you can be successful because you're a girl, some folks that don't believe that you can be accomplished as, you know, as a young black man, you know, and so you got to, you got to teach them what those, what those threats are to their success and, 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 and how to denounce that and know that you are denouncing it just by your very existence. Right. And so I think we have to teach that on the, on the small side, but for those who are in current leadership positions, you got to, check those peers um, who say those things in those, in those board meetings, right. Who, you know, or, you know, you know, your fellow commanders who say some things about, about the, you know, the young learning of color or the young employee of color is like, ah, you know, I don't know, you know, is that a culture thing? I don't know why they do that. Like check their biases, look for the biases and check them every damn time ruthlessly. Um, And, by doing that, we show that that's not, you know, that's not what matters when we're hiring young, you know, young talent or grooming young talent. Um, and the final thing I think, and more, and more importantly, stop putting it on people of color to do it. I need my white male and female counterparts to help me with this. Cause you see it too. You know what it is. You know what the conversations are. You know what those trigger words are once, you know, once that young man leaves, you know, leaves the interview room. You know what some of those markers are on, on the resume that make you kind of raise your eyebrow like, mm, I, don't, I don't know what network, I don't know what job or what company they came from. I don't know if you want to hire them. Is that really important? You know, they, they came in and did a good job on the interview. Are you going to not accept them because of, you know, the network they came from or, you know, or represent it? You know, what, you know, what really matters? And, um, you know, you know, I need I need my white, you know, you know, you know, women and men, friends in corporate America to um, have the have the courage to make that uh, make that a priority in your conversations to 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 seek and then, and then swiftly denounce the biases that exist in those hiring processes or promotion uh, processes. Like, like, like you got it. You got to be there for us. Right. The true the true sense of allyship are, are in my humble opinion, are those who advocate uh, for people who are not in the room. People who don't get the seat at the table. Right. Like, like, don't. Don't tell me how good Tracy is when I'm standing next to you. How are you going to say to the boss how good Tracy is when she's not in the room and she's not afforded that opportunity on that conversation behind closed doors or on the golf course or at dinner or at the boss's house, right? Like, how are you pushing back 
on that bias when I'm not there, when, you know, when employees of color are not there. And to be clear for those, I think what's happening is people start, when they when they hear people of color, they equate that to black. Please know black is black, people of color is everybody else, right? So, you know, yeah, I, you know, I want to be clear when I say people of color, I just mean all minorities, um, racial and ethnic minorities as well, because, because there, you know, there are, you know, other minority groups who experience as women as well. And so, how are you going to advocate for, for women and other minority groups when we are not in the damn room? That's that's what we need. That's how we empower those and, and make sure that the generation behind us can can really succeed. It's a collective effort. And if you don't believe in that effort, damn, like come talk to me offline. I'm happy to I'm, I'm happy to explain why it is important to, you know, you know, to diversify your company and diversify your ranks as a as a unit as well. Um, because that 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 mindset is detrimental and toxic to those that are there. And it's, and it's going to manifest on how you lead your Marines or how you lead your company to success. So what's next for Tracy? It's a great question. Tracy wants to know what's next for Tracy. I don't know yet, man. I, uh, that, uh, that ways to be seen. Um, I am recruiting right now. Um, uh, you know, you know, that'll, that'll just be, uh, you know, something that, uh, I pray on and I continue to just, you know, you know, continue to think about corporate America is scary. You know, I got, you know, really, really comfortable leading as a Marine and now I'm a student and now I'm, you know, getting comfortable as a student, but you know, you know, you know, the uh, training was about to come off real quick here. And so I hope I just choose, you know, choose a company that has the right culture for me to thrive in, but most importantly, where I can learn and, and uh, have an impact. So, so I'm, I don't know either, Mike. <laughs> hey, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I got another, right, I got another right. venture I'm launching. Uh, again, I'm announcing at the end of the season. Uh, but, you know, it's all about growth. And uh, it's so busy. I love it. <laughs> closing remarks for our, our listeners. We got us. We got a, Like I said, we got a, a slew of listeners. I would say, you know, a lot of officers, Marine officers. I get messages from colonels, generals, you name it. Got a lot of young black officers listening to us. Got a lot of allies. Um, so I want to give yeah. you the platform to say any final remarks to our to our audience out there. And, you know, they don't get to have they don't get to hear these conversations on race like we're having, let alone at this level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to speak directly to the young women and young black officers who are listening. Um be the leader that you want to be, right? Be your authentic self um, and don't wait for someone to invite you to be your authentic self because uh, that invitation will never come as a Marine. <laughs> it'll, it'll never come, but start claiming who you are right now because if you don't, you will fall victim to the mindset that will you know, create this toxic um, personal uh, space for you. And you won't, you won't ever reach your full personal potential. Even if you do reach your professional, professional potential, um, you'll keep yourself up at night wondering about who you are. So lead, lead in your authentic truth to my fellow, not my, you know, my fellow Marines who are leaders. Um, know and seek the opportunities uh, where you can learn from your young leaders, your your young leaders who don't look like you and who can offer a unique perspective 
you got to create the space for them and you have to acknowledge when you aren't doing that and acknowledge when, you know, when's the right time to do so um, and check your own biases. Um, I don't want to have a discussion on unconscious biases here, but know that it exists and you contribute to that when you let it go unchecked personally. Um, And, you know, make sure that you're putting those mental markers in place to know when you're when you're performing them and check them and then lead, you know, with that check in place of like, okay, I can't lead this way. I need to be inclusive of all my Marines. I need to create that space for all of them. Um, because what you do and how you respond to your young women and minority officers will undoubtedly impact how they choose to continue on in this fighting force or how they choose to lead their Marines. Um, as well. And so be mindful that that trickle down effect is compounded when you allow your biases to lead you. Um, so I ask that you be diligent in acknowledging that and check it at every, at every step of the way and put, you know, put some, put some measures in place, ask your first sergeant, your sergeant major, whoever to, you know, to check you when you say something or, you know, you, you know, make sure that you're doing the right things and it takes work. Don't be afraid of the work. You always talk about it's hard to be hard or, you know, being tough as a market Marine. Well, this is hard shit. Get comfortable with it real damn quick. You know, you got to You got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. We, we, we say that OCS, we say that TBS, but when it comes real time, you know, for real talk to be really uncomfortable around creating space, you know, for women and minority uh, officers and leaders and Marines, we, um, we, sh- we shy away from that. Or we find out every other reason why that, you know, doesn't doesn't deserve the space that it does and, and how we lead our, our forces. So I ask that you check that and really ask yourself what you're doing to really uh, create a dynamic force that this Marine Corps should and always has been. Tracy, I appreciate you. I appreciate you for sitting down and sharing two hours with me on this show. To, uh, I appreciate you. Educate people out you. there. Yo, she's, uh, she charges $500 an hour for work and <laughs> and the interview, I owe her $1,500 already. So it is a, a real treat to have her here. But uh, no, like you said, you know, you can't force a safe space. Safe spaces can't be artificially made. They either exist or they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I like to say this is a safe space where we can have these conversations. And uh, I love being an entrepreneur because I get to do stuff like this. I get to interview awesome people like Tracy. I'm like fired up, man. Don't gas me up, Mike. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> where, where can people find you at, Tracy? Oh, man. Uh, you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, last name is Featherson. I know it sounds like it has an A in it, but it in fact does not have an A in it. So please do look me up. First name is Tracy with an E. Um, happy to connect with you on LinkedIn. Um, you're more than welcome to follow to follow me on Instagram. Where I'm posting my hottest takes on the uh, current the, the current events of the day. <laughs> uh, that, that that's just a just an aside, but you know, by all means, you can always connect with me there. Um, I welcome anybody to reach out if you want to take you know take the conversation offline about anything that I've said or just want to reach out and connect. Um, you know about. Uh, you know, you know, some of my experiences, I think, uh, I, I tell you, Mike, I got, I got a little too vulnerable for myself, man. I don't think I've ever uh, shared some of the things that I shared out loud, uh, uh, you know, you know, in ever, I'm not, I'm not gonna say in a while ever. So, so this, you know, this conversation was really deep for me. So I appreciate you holding the space, but, uh, welcome to follow on conversation if anybody would like to have it.
And for our listeners out there, do me a favor. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and support us by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. Order some real dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. We got to start supporting our own businesses. Veteran-owned, Black-owned, minority-owned. We need y'all support, especially in the midst of this pandemic. We can't do it alone. Mike and the team at Dope Coffee just dropped a hip-hop album called Spinach. Head over to dopecoffee.com and purchase your exclusive spinach merch pack. Also, be sure to donate at ironboundboxing.org where we build champions in and out of the ring. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunity programs for youth and young adults in low-income communities. We are a kicking ass in Newark, y'all. We built a free boxing gym for the community and also launched our incubator Thrive this summer. All of our programs are free to youth and young adults in Newark, New Jersey. We're running another small business pitch competition this November, and we're going to teach participants how to launch a small business and give them an opportunity to earn some cash prizes. If our mission speaks to you, we'd love to have you support our efforts. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. Posting and commenting on social media is one thing. Being bold and taking action is another. We could use your help. So donate today at at ironboundboxing.org. Message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, the one and only Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network, where we're rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man.